The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Good morning, Springs Church. Welcome, everybody. It's so good to be worshiping with you here this morning. So fun to see so many new faces and people who are jumping in to walk with us in our journey with Jesus. So that's so, so exciting. And if you're a visitor here this morning, I hope you feel welcomed. I hope you know how grateful we are that you're here. So glad to be worshiping with you all this morning. And I'm glad you're here on week two of our sermon series, Blessed Are the Peacemakers. Wanted to give you just a little snapshot of where we're headed Last week, we talked about grace and peace, and in the coming weeks, we're going to talk about peace within the church, we'll talk about ourselves and peace, and we'll talk about God and peace. Uh, But this morning, we're going to spend time talking about world and peace and the church's place within that, and we're going to do that primarily in the Gospel of John, beginning in chapter 17, verses 13 through 21, if you want to follow along. Jesus prays this to his Father. Now I am coming to you, and I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy made complete in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but I ask you to protect them from the evil one. They do not belong to the world just as I do not belong to the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself so that they also may be sanctified in truth. I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one. Let's pray. God, what a gift it is to gather this morning and to be called together by your word, to be chastened and encouraged and inspired to live after the manner of Jesus, to be sanctified, to be made holy in his truth, your living word. God, I ask you for the gift of preaching, and I ask that we would take this true word and live it faithfully in our lives. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. I've been told that I'm a person who is loud. It's not something that I learned about myself easily. Uh, for one thing, when you're loud, that's pretty much the default for most of your life. So that's just how I've always been. Uh, and also, my mouth is in front of my ears. So most of the decibels are coming out at everybody else. In fact, I went over to uh, Logan and Elise Neff's house a couple weeks ago, and they have a son who's almost two, so it's a delicate matter to get him to sleep and keep him sleeping. And they informed me that earlier in the day, Elise had gone up to their son's room, shut the door with the sound machine on, and Logan had stood on the first floor, imitating at full volume my laugh. <laughs> Just to be safe. And it worked out. 
people have told me over the years that I'm kind of a loud person, especially my laugh, but I never learned viscerally the true extent of my loudness until I entered a completely different society. I went to the country of Japan, and that is a very quiet country. Let me tell you, I am, uh, Americans, you might know, we're considered pretty boisterous around the world, and I'm a loud American, so going to Japan, I mean, I specifically remember walking around beautiful old city, Kyoto, and thinking, I am just way too loud for this place. This is such a quiet culture. I learned how loud I was, because one of the ways that we learn truths about ourselves and about the world is through contrast. Have you ever learned anything about yourselves through contrast? Maybe you went to a friend's house or you went and visited your your spouse, their family, and you learned, wow, this is different than my family, right? My family does X, this family does Y. There are different ways to be in the world. We learn through contrast. And Jesus calls us to be peacemakers He calls us to do that in a world that is very violent and filled with strife and destruction. And I believe that Jesus wants us to teach the world peace through contrast. I believe that God's way of showing the world the ways of the kingdom of peace is by calling together a people of peace to live in contrast to the world. That's the heart of what I want to explore with you this morning, is that very simple idea that Jesus' church makes peace by living in contrast to the world. We make peace by living differently, set apart from the world. Now that might feel very simple, but I think it gets to the very fundamental questions of who we are as as God's creation, as as followers of Jesus, as his church, and what we are designed to do in the world. So I want to look at four different aspects of that truth with you. And because I'm a preacher, they all start with the same letter. But the first one is this, the church contrasts the world by calling. We're called to this. We didn't really choose it, It chose us. God chose us. God chose Abraham to bless all the nations of the earth. He called Israel to be his people. He says in Deuteronomy this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on earth to be his people, his treasured possession. It was not because you were more numerous than any other people that the Lord set his heart on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. It was because the Lord loved you. God doesn't choose the biggest and the baddest nation. He chooses the fewest of all peoples. He calls them, he loves them, and he calls them to teach the world his ways. He calls them to be a blessing to all the nations. And this is what Isaiah's vision is of that blessing in Isaiah chapter 2. He says, in the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways. 
and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. This is God's intention for the people he's called. And by the time Jesus steps on the scene, Israel has largely failed in that task. Right? They've, they've failed. They've been unfaithful. They've been in exile. And Jesus shows up, and Jesus' project is the same thing, but he is renewing Israel. He is regathering them to him and reestablishing God's people to be a people of peace in the world. So this is the background to Jesus' words that we read earlier in John 17. He prays, they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself so that they also may be sanctified in truth. Sanctified made holy. Remember in Deuteronomy he said, you're holy. Holiness means to be set apart, to be different, to be in contrast. This is what Jesus is calling around him. He's calling for a people to be set apart as peacemakers, to be the people that will beat the swords into plowshares, the spears into pruning hooks. In other words, that will take the instruments of war, of death, And turn them into farming equipment, right? Make instruments of death into instruments of life. The church contrasts the world and it's our calling. And we're called to it to be a corrective. This is the second thing. The church contrasts the world as a corrective, right? The purpose of Israel is to teach the world The purpose of God's people is to teach the world something about itself that it can't really viscerally learn on its own. The world is is a hard and violent place. And, And that seems obvious, but the world needs to learn the extent to which it has collaborated with the forces of death and destruction. And so Jesus does that by calling a group of people to be a corrective, to be different than the kingdoms of this world. As he says in John chapter 18 to Pontius Pilate, he says, my kingdom does not belong to this world. If my kingdom belonged to this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Right? Jesus' followers would be fighting if they were just like anyone else, if they weren't a contrast. They would be doing a a violent revolution, right? The Messiah would be violently overthrowing the Romans. But that's not what Jesus does. And Rome is in the background here, right? Rome is in the background of everything that happens in the Gospels. And we should be honest, it was an incredible empire. Now, I know I'm I'm playing into stereotypes here as as a guy who's interested in the Roman Empire. But 
it's part of my job to be interested in the Roman Empire because everything that Jesus does plays out there, and it really was an amazing empire. In fact, the historian Tom Holland uh, put out a book recently. I've just read little snippets of it. It's just called Pax, the Latin word for peace. And he talks about some of their achievements from 2,000 years ago. He says, temples and theaters, baths and libraries, paving stones and central heating, Sanitation, medicine, education, wine, public order, irrigation, roads, freshwater systems, and public health. These are all achievements of the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. It's incredible, right? The Caesars had the entire Mediterranean. But there was a dark side to that Pax, to that peace. There was a dark side, wasn't there? Because this peace was maintained on incredibly brutal violence. The most popular tourist destination in Rome today is still the Colosseum. We know what went on there. The most famous symbol from the Roman world has to be Jesus' cross. We know what went on there. This is... The capacity of the Romans, Tom Holland says, the capacity of the legions, the armies, to exercise extreme violence was the necessary precondition of the peace of Rome. Isn't that what Pilate says to Jesus? In John 19, he asks him, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate therefore said to him, do you refuse to speak to me? Do you not know that I have power to release you and power to crucify you? He plays that crucifixion card because that's the ace on which the entire Roman hand is built. So everything Jesus does is in contrast to that. Jesus comes and he's the son of God Well, Caesar was the son of God. The Christians say Jesus is Lord, but the Christians say Jesus is Lord, but the Caesars, that was their proclamation, that they were Lord, right? Jesus is born into this dark and violent peace, and he comes to bring a peace not founded in the same way as Rome, right? Jesus' peace belongs to a people that don't belong to the kingdoms of this world. And that's why in Matthew, when Peter grabs his sword to slice off the servant of the high priest's ear, Jesus says, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will die by the sword. Jesus teaches a peace not founded on the sword. A peace not founded on putting your enemies on crosses. But Jesus exercises authority by allowing his enemies to crucify him. He puts down the sword and he takes up his cross. But the world sees that as bonkers. That's completely bananas to the kingdoms of the world. It's hogwash, right? You can't possibly found a people on that. It's foolish. That's what the Apostle Paul owns. In 1 Corinthians, he says, Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of the proclamation to save those who believe. 
For Jews ask for signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. The world's peace looks intuitive. It looks rational. It looks wise. But when God puts Jesus forward as the ultimate sign of peace, he makes foolish the wisdom of the world. He reveals it. He unveils it by that contrast to correct it. He unveils that wisdom for what it really is, which is madness. The peace of our world. We actually say that it is, it's mad, M-A-D, mutually assured destruction. Right? Our peace is founded on the fact that if this country bombs this country, we know that this country is going to bomb that country, so let's just not do it. Mutually assured destruction. It's mad. And through the cross, the contrast of Christ, God reveals it. Because God has called us to teach the world his wisdom. God has called us to be a unified people across whatever boundaries try to divide us, right? Whatever boundaries that the world observes. We do that as a corrective. Stanley Hauerwas says, how could the world ever recognize the arbitrariness of the divisions between people if it did not have a contrasting model in the unity of the church? Only against the church's universality can the world have the means to recognize the irrationality of the divisions resulting in violence and war. We contrast the world as a corrective. But that takes courage. The church contrasts the world through courage because it takes courage to live as a holy fool doesn't it? It takes courage to be set apart, to be distinct, to have to live differently. We're praying for the persecuted church this morning, a people that knows just how much courage it takes to live distinctly in ways that will bring persecution. But Jesus wants to give us his courage, right? When he's looking at the cross in John 16, he says, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each one to his home, and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. I have said this to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you face persecution, but take courage. I have conquered the world. I recently watched for the first time the 2016 Oscar-winning movie Hacksaw Ridge. Maybe some of you have seen it. It tells the story of an American World War II hero named Desmond Doss. But he's a very unlikely World War II hero because he's a Christian pacifist. He's, he's a conscientious objector, actually. 
But he signs up because when World War II strikes, he feels a heavy duty, a responsibility to serve somehow. So he signs up as a medic, and he believes that his conscientious objector status will allow him to serve as a medic without having to violate his conscience about the Sixth Commandment, about killing. But he gets assigned to a rifle unit. So he gets in the rifle unit, and the men treat him with all kinds of persecution and abuse for his stance. But he persists. And even his captain, Jack Glover, says, I will never serve with you if this is your stance, if you won't kill. But he says in the movie, Desmond Doss says, while everybody else is taking life, I'm going to be saving it. With the world so set on tearing itself apart, it doesn't seem like such a bad thing to me to want to put a little bit of it back together. So he charges into battle, and he gets to the Battle of Okinawa, and there's Hacksaw Ridge, this cliff, and there's a counterattack that forces his unit all the way back. Everybody, there's a huge retreat ordered, but he stays, and one by one, he pulls wounded men off of that ridge over and over and over again, so much so that on May 5th, 1945, Desmond Doss single-handedly saved the lives of 75 men. He even saved the life of Captain Jack Glover, who wound up saying that he was one of the bravest persons he'd ever met. Desmond Doss won the Medal of Honor. He received the highest award that the U.S. military gives out. He received it as a conscientious objector because he had the courage to live differently. It takes courage to stand in contrast, even receiving persecution. Jesus says, take courage, I've conquered the world. Which brings us to our fourth and final aspect this morning, that the church contrasts the world through community, through community. On Monday morning, I was sitting in my office wrestling with the words of Jesus, wrestling with this kingdom of peace that we're supposed to be a part of, wrestling with the ethic that Jesus lays out in Matthew 5 later after he says, blessed are the peacemakers. He says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, give your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to the one who asks of you. And do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. I was wrestling with those words this past week, sitting alone at my desk. And then I I picked up a book off my shelf, a a book that I read last year called Jesus and Community. And, And I got to a paragraph in that book that it made me laugh. Because he says, the question whether the demands of Jesus can be fulfilled is not one which can ultimately be answered by an individual, especially an individual sitting at a desk. (laughs) 
Jesus' ethic is not directed to isolated individuals, but to the circle of disciples, the new family of God, the people of God, which is to be gathered. We can only live the wisdom of the cross if we do it together. We can only be a contrast society if we are actually a society, if we're actually a family of people placing ourselves, wrestling somehow underneath the reign of Jesus and his kingdom of peace. We can only do that if we're united in the spirit of Jesus Christ. There's another World War II story that I'm sure I've told before about the community of Christians in La Chambon, France. When the Nazis invaded France in 1940, the French government quickly gave themselves over to working with them, and people began to give up their neighbors and friends who were Jewish to be sent away to camps, death camps. But there was a community in La Chambon, France, that refused to comply. And in 1942, the authorities came to La Chambon and they summoned the Protestant pastor, Andre Trochma, and they said, hey, we know what you're doing. We know that you're, you're hiding Jews and it's got to stop. And here's a deadline and you better comply. He said no. And over the course of the war, at great cost to their community, the Christians in La Chambon rescued between 2,500 and 5,000 refugees, most of them Jewish. They welcomed them. And when they were asked why they did this, they said things like, it was just natural. It was, it was the right thing to do. I learned about this story in a documentary called Weapons of the Spirit. That title is taken from the sermon that Trachma preached the day after the Nazis invaded France. And he said in this sermon, the duty of Christians is to resist the violence directed at our consciences with the weapons of the Spirit. But we must do our duty without conceding defeat, without servility, without cowardice. We will resist when our enemies demand that we act in ways that go against the teachings of the gospel. We will resist without fear, without pride, and without hatred. They were not naive in La Chambon about the way that the world is. But they believed that they had been called to live as those who do not belong to the warring world. They believed that they would be sustained by the Spirit of Jesus Christ if they lived in unity as a contrast to the ways of the world. They need each other. We need each other. We can't live the foolishness of the cross on our own. We have to have unity. We have to have the weapons of the Spirit. We have to have the wisdom of God, which comes in the form of Jesus serving one another, finding our allegiance in Jesus Christ and His peace belonging to His kingdom, the kingdom of the one who was Lord and who exercised his power not by killing his enemies, but for dying for them. 
Jesus Christ calls us to be a contrast society to teach the world the madness of its ways, to teach the world the madness of the violence that infects us all, to live according to the ways of Jesus and the foolishness of the cross as a holy people set apart by the wisdom of God. Church, let us stand and proclaim our allegiance to the Prince of Peace who rules through the cross and the resurrection.